Well, good morning. The power of the cross, that's the focus uh, of the song, that's the focus of our, of our thoughts here today as we look into 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> you know, uh, this week on Thursday morning, I was reading an article uh, by a French-Canadian named Jonathan Pajot, and he... Uh, he mentioned a tombstone that sits in Westminster Abbey, uh, and on the tombstone it says uh, it's of an Anglo-Saxon bishop uh, from the year 1100, so it's quite old. And uh, there's an inscription on that tombstone, so I looked it up, and when I read it, I thought, wow, th- I really like that, uh, it's inspiring, and so I, I copied that out and I pasted it on my Facebook, and maybe some of you read it there, but... I went on the internet to, to check my facts and found the actual tombstone upon which this inscription is. And here's what it reads. When I was young and free, and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change. So I shortened my sight somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they would have none of it. And now I realize, as I lie on my deathbed, if I had only changed myself first, then by example I might have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would have been able to better my country. And who knows, I might have even changed the world. So I put that, I quoted that up, and I put it up on Facebook, hoping to get a few little dopamine rushes as people put like buttons on it. And, uh, and then I got to work on my sermon for today, and I, about, a couple, about two hours later, I realized what I had just put on Facebook directly contradicts what I'm supposed to preach on Sunday morning. At least there, there seems to be a contradiction there. So, so I'm going to leave that up to you. Uh, you decide if I contradict myself or not from Facebook to this sermon. Uh, but it was, it was a sobering moment to, for, for me to, to look at that and that inspiring quote that, that I actually disagree with. So I, I want to ask a question. Uh, as we start thinking about 2 Corinthians. What is the recipe for a mature Christian and a mature Christian community? What are the ingredients? How do you put them together to become uh, mature? Now, I don't know what word you prefer. I just typed in mature here on this question, but it could have been uh, godly, or it could have been holy, or it could have been uh, growing in Christ, or, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different words and phrases we use to describe uh, this, the, the one that's in, in the theology textbook is sanctification. And you've heard all these terms and you've, you've uh, understood probably that they're synonyms with one another. But how do we get there? How do we become mature? Uh, mature, we know, is not perfection, but it's, it's someone who's overcoming the addictions and overcoming the habits and having a godly attitude more and more often. And, and, you know, just add to the list whatever you would think would be on the list towards maturity. So since I'm talking about recipes, I'll put a recipe up on the screen for you. 
Who can tell me what I'm baking if I have these ingredients in my recipe? Cheesecake. Of course. My favorite thing. I have lots of practice making cheesecake. But let me ask you this. If I take all of those ingredients and throw them in a spring farm pan and put it in the oven, will I end up with cheesecake? The answer is no. Some of you are like, "Uh, I'm not sure. Never tried that. The answer is no. Because the order matters. In fact, in a cheesecake, the order matters maybe more than in many things. Because, first of all, you have to, you have to take the, the ingredients that belong in the crust and do a certain process with them. And then you have to take the ingredients that belong in the, the bulk of the, of the cake. And uh, one thing I've learned is that it turns out much better if they're room temperature before you mix them. makes a difference in this recipe. Many recipes it doesn't. But this one, you want to leave the eggs on the counter for a few hours first. And then it also matters that you put the eggs in last. Because if you, if you beat up the eggs too much, then it's going to end up being uh, dry and burnt on the edges. And if you don't mix them in enough, then it's not going to have a consistency throughout because the eggs is what actually helps it to, to become solid in the end. And um, so you want to put them in just till... They're mixed. Not any more, not any less. And that's why most of you go to the store for a cheesecake because it's kind of tricky. And when you take it out of the oven, you have no idea if it's done because it's still all jiggly. You have to let it cool down before you find out if it's actually done. And you can't put it back in the oven because that doesn't work. So anyways, that's cheesecake. I'm getting beyond myself here. But the point I'm trying to make is this. The order matters. The order in which you, you can have all the right ingredients, but if you don't have them in the right order, it's still not going to turn out. So that's important in recipes. So if, as, we, as, we look into, um, as we look into 2 Corinthians, I want to show you what Paul himself describes as his own mental state. So, so, so just take a look here in chapter 1, in uh, verse 8, he writes this. We don't want you in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when all this came down on us in Asia province. It was so bad we didn't think we were going to make it. We felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. So I think in this instance he's describing mostly his sense of physical risk to his body, But obviously, if you're in a place where you think you're that close to death, it's going to have a deep and lasting psychological effect as well. I mean, they're humans. They're not, just because we read about them in the Bible doesn't mean they're not humans. They're just like us. If you, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a place where you think you're just in the doorstep of death, whether through physical illness or psychological trouble or, or something or other. Uh, But that's a devastating and that's a damaging place to be. It doesn't go well. Um, but that's where he was. Paul is describing himself and his fellow missionaries. That's where he was at. Now he goes into more detail, I think, in a little bit different, but I think it's still the fruit out of this, in chapter 7, where he writes this. When we arrived in Macedonia province, so it's a little bit later, but not long after, we couldn't settle down. The fights in the church and the fears in our hearts kept us on pins and needles, We couldn't relax because we didn't know how it would turn out. 
Now, if you were to take that kind of description of someone's internal turmoil and bring it to a psychologist's office, there would be a diagnosis. We're talking about someone who's having severe anxiety, probably depression, and um, probably not sleeping well, uh, so it's having physical effects on them. I mean, this is a, this is a troubled person. Paul is describing himself and he's describing a psychological uh, issue, a, a, what we would put in that category. So it's serious. This is not trivial. This, this is, uh, this is uh, you know, that combining that with that sense of physical danger and the psychological effects of that, and now the conflicts in the churches and the fighting and the fears, um, could not relax. I mean, I, I, I read headaches, I read tension, I read... Like, it's all in there. But if we keep reading uh, a little bit, we see that it does actually resolve. He goes on, Then the God who lifts up the downcast lifted our heads and our hearts with the arrival of Titus. We were glad just to see him, but the true reassurance came in what he told us about you, how much you cared, how much you grieved, how composed you were, how concerned you were for me, I went from worry to tranquility in no time. I went from worry, that state we were just describing, to tranquility. And so other translations put joy. It's all that, that sense of well-being, that psychological inner sense of well-being, in no time, in an instant, it changed. His, his psychology, his internal struggle it changed in no time, he says. So the question that would be worth asking is, what changed? What happened? What happened in his life that his inner psychology changed so dramatically? And so to get at that, we need to look at this letter that he writes called, that we call 2 Corinthians. It's actually his third letter to the Corinthian church, but we name it as 2 Corinthians. And as you begin to read 2 Corinthians, as Sheila already pointed out to us, the purpose of this letter clearly is an attempt to mend a broken relationship. The whole purpose of this letter is he's about to visit the Corinthians again and their relationship is not well and he writes this letter to go ahead of him in in an attempt to mend the relationship before he gets there. Now, we need to go back into the review Uh, Because to understand what he's doing in this letter, you have to understand the seriousness of the situation. I don't know if you've all gone into our uh, greatest story video or videos or recordings on the website, on our church website where I give this, but I'm going to just really quickly in a much more condensed version go through it here this morning because we have to have this in mind to understand the letter. So if we go back a little bit further... We find uh, Paul on his first missionary journey, and he comes. We're going to start the story. It starts earlier than this, but we're going to start it at Philippi. And Paul comes to Philippi, and he arrives there with with Silas and and Timothy and and probably Luke and maybe some others. And uh, they begin to share the gospel with people, and they begin to start a church and gather some believers in Jesus Christ around. And it's going really well, and the church is being built up and more being added. And then uh, there's, a, there's riots in the street against Paul, and he gets beaten, uh, whipped actually, uh, as a punishment, 
probably close to death from that whipping. And then he, him and Paul and Silas get put in prison. And uh, that's the situation where God sent the earthquake and they got broke out of prison by the earthquake and they snuck out of town. It's too dangerous to be here anymore. And that's going to leave scars, physical and emotional scars. So they go on to the next place which they go to, which is Thessalonica. Same thing. They start sharing the gospel. People come to know Jesus. They start to gather the believers together into a church and more are added to the number. And then uh, at some point, the, the crowds in the streets rise up again and it becomes violent and they drag off members of the church. They don't get Paul this time, but Paul and the others sneak out at night to get out of the city in safety, leaving behind these poor people who are being severely persecuted by their, by their town. They go then to Berea. Same thing happens. They, they start sharing the gospel. They start a church. A uh, few weeks, maybe two months later, uh, just when they're starting to get into the swing of things, the riots start, the mobs come up, and it's very dangerous. And by this time, people in the area know that Paul is the problem. And, uh, and so Paul, uh, the, I, think, I think if I read Acts correctly, Paul, against his will, gets put by the, his, his teammates onto a ship uh, in the port uh, of, of um, Berea there, and, and they sneak him out of town to try to defuse the situation. So now not only has he been mobbed upon and beaten and imprisoned and, and in danger, fear of his death for all this time, he's now separated from his friends and from his teammates and on a ship off to Athens. He, he arrives in Athens, and even though he's in this depleted state, he does what he always does. He starts to share the gospel. And uh, it's, not, it's not, I don't know how long he was in Athens. It doesn't really tell us. But as far as we can tell, it's complete failure. There's no church. There's no Christians in Athens. So he moves on to Corinth, still alone. His teammates haven't found him yet. And he comes to Corinth, and we saw when we looked in First and Second Thessalonians how he describes himself when he arrives in Corinth. Remember? He's trembling, he's weak, he's depressed, he's probably physically ill and undernourished. He's, in, he's not impressive. When the Corinthian people meet Paul, he doesn't come across as someone who's strong or impressive in any way. He does tell them about Jesus, and they're impressed with Jesus, and they come to know the Lord, some of the people in Corinth, and they become Christians, and the church starts. And so there's this little start of a church in Corinth, and, uh, but Paul is, is, is uh, not, his teammates meet up with him there in Corinth, and uh, they travel on then back to Antioch, just north of, Jeru north of Palestine, and, uh, and spend about a year and a half in recovery. I think they're depleted physically, emotionally, they're down. And so uh, they, they stay out of the picture for a while to recover. Uh, during this year, what Paul doesn't know, but what happens is, a number of other apostles visit Corinth. Now, one of the other ones we know is Peter. Now, have you ever read the Gospels and heard the name Peter? Peter is not a guy that comes across as weak, ever. He's always in the center of attention. He's always loud. He's always saying the thing no one else has the nerve to say. And we also know that his ministry as apostle um, is accompanied by miracles. Paul doesn't do very many miracles, but Peter does. 
And so that's a difference. He comes across to the Corinthians as very impressive, whereas Paul came across as very weak and unimpressive. And then Apollos is another man who comes, another uh, minister who comes to Corinth during that time. And he's, uh, he's trained in rhetoric, he's trained in public speaking, he's trained in argument, and, and he's one of the best of the best, and he really impresses them with his ability to, to win the arguments and convince people that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and, and he's, uh, he's on that, that thing. And then there's others that aren't named that visit. And in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to them as super apostles. So that's all happening while Paul's absent. Then Paul travels out again, and this time he goes to Ephesus, and he sets up his training school where he collects young men from all of the different regions that he's been, and he trains them over a course of about three years uh, in the ministry in passing on the apostolic and church planting ministry to them. And um, while he's in, in Ephesus, he gets reports from visitors, but then also a letter from Corinth about troubles in the church and divisions in the church over who should lead. And so he writes them a letter that we know of as 1 Corinthians, which we looked at last Sunday. But what we didn't get into last Sunday is when, when 1 Corinthians is delivered to the Corinthian Christians, they reject it. They don't listen to it. They throw it out. They say, we're not going to go by this advice. We don't respect Paul anyways. And so they reject the letter outright. They, they don't listen at all. And so Paul thinks it's so serious that even though he's got this, this ministry school set up in Ephesus, he takes time out of that and he travels over, it's not that far, but he travels over to Corinth to try to say, well, if they're not going to listen to my letter, if I come in person, I can convince them of the solution to their problems, the gospel solution, as we saw last week. We find out in 2 Corinthians that when Paul visited them, one of the leaders, one of these super apostles, as he describes them, defies him to his face in front of the church. and says, no, we reject you. You're not our apostle. You're not our leader. We will not listen to your advice. And none of those Christians who came to the Lord under Paul's ministry defended him. So he's utterly rejected. He's utterly, the relationship is completely broken. And he goes back to Ephesus having failed completely to bring the Corinthians around. Their relationship's over. He mentions in 2 Corinthians a letter that he wrote at that time, and he refers to it as the severe letter. I suspect he was angry, he was rejected, he was maybe even a little vindictive, but whatever it is, he wrote a letter to them, which we don't have, it's not in our Bibles, but he refers to it, and then immediately after sending that letter, he seems to have regretted sending it. Thinking, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have sent that. That's going to have the wrong impact. And uh, we just read 2 Corinthians, look for that. You'll find it in there. He mentions that. So now it's some time later, and he's preparing to visit them again. And there's no relationship. It's gone. He writes 2 Corinthians to go ahead of him in an attempt to restore the relationship. Uh, before he arrives. And in that time, at that place, he writes about what, how he was feeling, and that's what we just read. Um, we couldn't relax because we didn't know how it would turn out. We were on pins and needles, full of fears, and our hearts were troubled. We just read that. Something changes. Because he goes on and says, 
I went from worry to tranquility in no time. His internal psychology turned around. What happened? Because we all want that, don't we? We all want that peace, that tranquility, that joy. What changed? It says it right here. It's not hard to uh, understand. Titus, who delivered the severe letter to the Corinthians, catches up with them, finds them again, and he arrives. And this is what he says. Titus told us about how you, about you, how much you cared, how much you grieved, how concerned you were for me. So the Corinthians had read his severe letter delivered by Titus and they changed. Now they're grieved about how they treated Paul in the previous visit. Now they're concerned about him and they're hoping, they they don't know if they can ever restore this relationship, but they're concerned about it now. And Paul says, I went from worry to tranquility in an instant or in no time. And I think we can confidently say, what I think is the main point that we can take away from 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, God says, psychology follows relationship. Psychology follows relationship. See, we turn it around. The devil turns it around. The world turns it around. Our politicians turn it around. Our schools turn it around. Our training turns it around. And tells us, if only you fix yourself, then you'll have good relationships. If only you fix yourself, get it straight, work on yourself, look at your own belly button until everything's perfect. And then reach out. But this is a different thing. Paul was psychologically unhealthy until the relationship changed. And then his psychology changed. The the ingredients are the same. The order is important, just like the cheesecake. I went through this week, 2 Corinthians, and I went through each section, each verse, each passage with this in mind. What is it teaching us about how to restore relationships? Because that's the whole point of the letter. It's a single purpose. He's writing the letter in an attempt to restore the relationship with the Corinthians. And, and I, could, I, I don't have time to go through this, but I just encourage, I flash it up on the screen to encourage you to read 2 Corinthians with that in mind. Some of the things in 2 Corinthians are, uh, you, you just kind of cut them out of the letter because they're nice, you know, jars of clay and, you know, this other stuff that, that kind of signs nice to us. But you have to understand all of that stuff in, in, in the context of it's written to restore the relationship. How does it help? And if you do that, you'll learn how to restore relationships, how to get them back right. But you have to do the work. You have to do the study, and we don't have time this morning. Let me just highlight a couple of things. First, in chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, he goes on about the man who opposed him in front of the church. Remember, I just told you about that. The apostle, the super apostle that said, Paul is not an apostle. Don't listen to him. Don't read his letters. Listen to me. And none of the people, even the ones who had been converted under Paul, defended Paul. That guy. So he goes on here. Forgive that man. And bring him back into the fellowship. Restore the relationship with the one who hurt me the most. That's what he tells them to do. That's what he encourages. That's what he 
what he, he reaches out to them. And then in the final greeting, he kind of puts it together with these words. Aim for perfection. That's what we're talking about, right? How do you become mature as a Christian? How do you become mature as a, as a church? That's, that, you know, perfection would be a description of that. So aim for perfection. Aim, we know you're not going to quite get there, but that's your goal. That's what we're working towards. How do we get there? Listen to my appeal. Be one-minded, live in peace, and the God who God of love and peace will be with you. So he's talking here in his conclusion when he wraps it all up. Be at peace in right relationship with God and with one another. That's the recipe for perfection. Right relationships. Get your relationships right and the perfection comes after. The, the aiming for perfection comes after. So just kind of in closing, although it'll be a, a little bit of a lengthy closing, I want to look at um, I want to look at what I think is the key passage. I, I didn't put the, the reference up there. I think the printing might be a bit small, but I hope you have a Bible in front of you on your phone or your, or your printed Bible. It's chapter 5, verse 14 to 19. We're just going to read it and talk about it because it's really not complicated to understand. In fact, I think most or all of you already assent to this. But this is, I believe, the key passage in the, in the whole uh, letter. Everything flows out of or flows into this truth. This is what he's expanding in the whole letter in various different ways. And here's how he says it. So in verse 14 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old self. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So that's essentially the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Just there in a, in a couple of sentences straightforward, easy to understand. And what it's telling us is this. You've heard it from another verse. While we were still sinners, God loved us. So the way we turn it around is we look into our own selves and we say, if I fix myself, then God will love me. If I fix myself... Then I'll be on God's good books. But what this says, what the good news of the gospel is, the foolishness to the Gentile, but wisdom to those who have faith and believe, is that God loved us. And how we express that love is that He didn't expect us to perfect ourselves before He loved us. He took the steps to the restore the relationship first. And out of that restored relationship with God, we are transformed. The healing of our psychology comes after the restoring of the relationship, not before. It never comes before. Everyone in this world that tells you that is telling you, describing to you an upside down, backwards world. The opposite of Christ, the Antichrist message. And even those in the church, even my Facebook post on Thursday morning was the lie. I was seduced. 
I thought I was being smart. And I put it out there until God's word brought me up sharp. Verse 16, just to keep reading, this, this, this is what I've been saying. So what happens after the restored relationship with God? Before perfection, but after the restored relationship. Verse 16. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We stop looking at each other from a human point of view. What's a human point of view? We all know it because we all do it. When you fix yourself, then I'll have a relationship with you. Then I'll love you. When I fix myself, then I'll have a good marriage. Then I'll be a good parent. Then I'll... Looking internal. First. And then expecting fruit out of that. No, we stop evaluating each other by that. We evaluate each other instead by a Christian point of view. A Christian point of view says, I believe by faith that God is making you perfect. So even though you're not perfect yet, I am going to relate to you in that faith as though you are. I believe that Jesus is returning. My hope is in His return. And when Jesus comes and you see Him face to face, you will be perfect. And so I relate to you now in the light of that hope. Why? Because that's how God relates to me. God loved me first while I was a sinner. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. Just talked about that. This means, he just says it again. It's not enough to just say it once. He's going to say it again. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. How does the new life begin? How does this transformation happen? By getting the relationship between you and God right. The relationship comes first. And the fruit of that, putting the relationship right, is the old life slips away. We become new people. He says it again in verse 18. And all of this is a gift from God. Now you tell me, if I do all the work to make myself perfect, and then a result of that work God loves me, is that a gift? No, that's wages for hard work. That's earned. It's not a gift. That's putting me first and God second. That's putting the transformation first and the relationship second. Once I'm better, then I can have a relationship with God. That's not a gift. But here and in many other places in God's Word, all this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. He restored the relationship through Christ as a gift before we changed. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. And so now we get to the... To, to our participation in the reconciliation, and that's how it affects other people, our relationships with others. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, long, no longer counting people's sins against them, and we imitate him, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. One author summarizes this message with these words. 
All of this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. We don't get better by trying to change ourselves, by looking internal, by paying all the money to the psychologists. I'm not saying we shouldn't go to psychologists because they can help us. That's not the point here. The point is, if we get the relationships right, our psychology will follow. We'll become healthy. We'll be transformed. We'll become holy. We'll reach for perfection. And here's what happens. If I look at myself and I work really hard and I'm capable of hard work and I improve myself and then at some point I think, okay, good enough. I'm perfect now. Now I can start having a marriage and kids and a church family and relationships and all of this. What's going to happen? I will force you to be like me in my imperfections. Because I've done the work. So now I'm ready for relationship. And the fruit of that is all over the world. From broken marriages to broken friendships, from brothers and sisters who don't talk to each other, all the way up to, uh, to dictators who've killed millions of their own citizens. It's all the fruit of the same thing, getting this backwards. If I fix myself, then I'm ready to take on the world. It's the lie. What happened when Adam and Eve decided to define good and evil for themselves and take from the fruit? of the tree they were commanded not to, instead of believing God. Their relationship with God broke, and the first thing they did is fight with each other. Blame each other for the problem. And God's work is to restore our relationship with Him. And the fruit of that restored relationship with Him is restored relationships with each other. And when we get our relationships right, like Paul, we can say, And I went from worry to tranquility in a short amount of time. What is the recipe to become a mature Christian or a mature Christian community? How do we get there? I think we have the right ingredients often. but We put them in the wrong order. So take, for example, something like this. What is a good Christian? What is a mature Christian? Well, if you're a Christian, if you go to church, if you do all the things, you're going to have a good marriage. You're going to have good friends. You're going to, you're going to um, feed the hungry. You're going to take care of the downtrodden. I mean, add to the list whatever you want. My friends, that is not what the church is for. The purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is not to give you better friendships. It's not to feed the hungry. The purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is the ministry of reconciliation, fixing broken relationships, first between us and God and then between one another. To put it in different words, what did Jesus say? Seek first his kingdom, which is all about relationship, and what what comes? All these things will be added As long as our focus 
is on the things, we'll never achieve them and we'll never be right with God either. But if we put the relationship first, as God does, as the Bible does, get our relationship with God straight, get our relationship with each other straight, all these other things will happen. They'll be the fruit of those right relationships. For if we truly, because you know, if, we, if, I, if I put it on myself first, and I see a hungry person, I'll have all kinds of ways to blame them for being hungry and excuse myself for not feeding them. I only feed the ones I choose, the ones that have earned it. But if I get my relationship with God right, and He forgives me before I stop sinning, if He gives to me before I'm perfect, then what kind of person will I become? I'll become the one that feeds the person because they're hungry, not because they're perfect. I'll become the person that doesn't rely on my wealth for my own well-being. But I rely on my relationship with God for my own well-being. So I'll be free to be generous. I'll be able to love the people around me while they limp. And by limping, it can be mental, it can be psychological, it can be physical, it doesn't matter. While they're broken, before they're better, because that's how God loved me. This is how we put it in the vision statement of our church. We're trying to say exactly this same thing. This is what our church is trying to focus our attention on, our ministry on, our efforts, our budget on. In January, when our new constitution comes into full effect, it's all designed around seeking to make this real. United in Jesus Christ, putting God first, not myself. <clears throat> As we grow, excuse me, <clears throat> Up the red arrow through the blood of Christ in our relationship with God. Not in our performance for God, but in our relationship with Him. Get that relationship right. And as we grow in, in the green arrow, towards one another in growth, as we get those relationships healthy and strong and right within the church family, and then out as the harvest fields are green and we bring this ministry of reconciliation to the people around us. That's how we measure the recipe, maturity. We can do all those things while we're still broken people because we focus on the relationship. And through getting these things in the right order, the other things follow. All these things will be added. Accept the gift. Live for Jesus. Be reconciled with one another. Seek first His kingdom, and all these things will be added. Seek the added things. You'll never get the added things. You'll never get the kingdom. Seek the kingdom, and it will all follow. It will all come. In 2 Corinthians, God says, psychology follows relationship. Fix your relationship with God through believing in Jesus Christ, Fix your relationship with one another through forgiving people even if they don't deserve it. As Paul did to the man who opposed him publicly. You'll find tranquility and joy in life. I want to close with a quote from 
from a prominent psychologist. Uh, this is the man who wrote the textbook for Christian counseling in all of the Bible schools and seminaries across North America. His name's Gary Smalley. Some of you have probably heard him before. Uh, he's been in not so much now because he's an older man, but in the in the last decades, he's, he's been a prominent man. And he wrote a book in which this quote comes from. And uh, just before, a few chapters before this quote, he, he, he admitted that what he's now teaching is career suicide. So he's put his whole life into Christian psychology. And this is what he says now. We have made a terrible mistake. For most of this century, we have wrongly defined soul wounds as psychological disorders and delegated their treatment to trained specialists. This man has spent his entire life training those specialists. This is what he says now as, an, as a mature man. Damaged psyches aren't the problem. The problem is disconnected souls. The problem is broken relationships is what he's saying. What we need is connection to God and other people. What we need is a healing community. United in Jesus Christ as we grow up, in, and out.